Open your Bibles to Luke chapter 5, verse 33 is where we'll start. Everybody good? Everybody doing all right? No answer. Uh, Good to see you guys today. I hope everything is well with you. A number in our congregation are facing a really, uh, really tough week. Uh, Chris Gregory will have his major cancer surgery this week. Um, Remember, he has a fist-sized tumor um, that is right against his heart. They will open his chest uh, uh, on Tuesday and remove that big tumor. It'll be good to see it gone. So, but, but pray for Chris and Rose as they make that journey and, uh, and go through that difficult surgery. Uh, Jan Wynn has surgery tomorrow. Pray for her, I know. Uh, Cindy Wilson, one of our ladies, was in a horrible car accident. She is in the trauma unit down at uh, Summit Hospital at Hermitage. She has 12 broken ribs, a broken vertebrae, a cracked sternum, uh, uh, a lot of blood uh, into her lungs, um, kidney difficulty. Uh, she's just in a lot of pain uh, and needs a lot of our prayers, so do pray for her. Uh, life's just hard sometimes, isn't it? Just really, really hard. Uh, and many of us carry very heavy burdens. So uh, that's why, as the body of Christ, as a church, that's why it matters so much that we learn to love each other well and uh, that we learn how to ask each other for help because we need help sometimes. And God loves to work through his people, so we wonder why God doesn't help us, but then we don't let anybody else help us. Uh, God works through his people, so we have to let people know how we struggle and what they can do to help us. Most people would help you if they only knew, uh, so uh, don't, don't keep it all to yourself. Luke chapter 5, we're kind of going through verse by verse of the book of Luke on Wednesday nights and a couple of Sundays here in, in the month of November. So I just want you to see, uh, it's October, isn't it? November too, by the way. Uh, but uh, Luke chapter 5, verse 33 is, is where we will be. Uh, as pastor, I spend a lot of time talking to people, and as you, as you probably guessed by what I just said, if I'm having a hard week, it only always just means that somebody else is having a worse week. Most people call me only on the worst days of their lives, and, and I am blessed uh, and often called upon to walk people through those hard, hard, hard days. Um, but in my experience as pastor, part of what I learn is just how desperately some people need change that they need their lives to change. They need their marriage to change. They need their relationships to change. They need change at work and change in in the relationship with their children and change in the way they deal with their money and certainly change in the way they relate to the Lord Jesus. And uh, change is hard, uh, but change is what uh, many of us need desperately. But at the same time, not everybody who needs change wants change, and that's the difficult part. Uh, The scripture says that when it comes to Jesus, uh, if anyone is in him, there is a new creation. Old things are passed away and everything is made new. Let's talk about the way Jesus makes things new. In Luke chapter 5, verse 33, another one of his controversies with the Pharisees. Uh, Let's pick up right here in verse 33. One day some people said to Jesus, John the Baptist's disciples fast and pray regularly and so do the disciples of the Pharisees. Why are your disciples always eating and drinking? (laughs) <laughs> they could ask us, this, they could ask our church the same thing, actually. Uh, why are you always eating and drinking? Verse 34, Jesus responded, do wedding guests fast while celebrating with the groom? <laughs> of course not. But someday the groom will be taken away from them and then they will fast. Then Jesus gave them this illustration. Now pay attention. Jesus is going to tell three little bitty parables. You think that a parable is only like a long story like the prodigal son. But these are parables too. They're tiny and they're three. And each one is marked in the New Living Translation by those words, no one, nobody. So pay attention. All right. Verse 36. Jesus gave them this illustration. 
No one tears a piece of cloth from a new garment and uses it to patch an old garment. For then the new garment would be ruined and the new patch wouldn't even match the old garment. All right, number two, verse 37. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. For the new wine would burst the wineskins, spilling the wine and ruining the skins. New wine must be stored in new wineskins. Another one, verse 39. And no one who drinks the old wine seems to want the new wine. The old is just fine, they say. Hmm. Uh, back in the day, uh, Tupelo, Mississippi, there was an uh, old couple. Uh, a man tells a story about his grandparents. They were Burton and Emma. They were married in the 1920s, as I said, Tupelo, Mississippi. At the time, they moved into an old, old farmhouse that was on Burton's family's place. Uh, it was not a nice house. It was just an old, run, this is in the 20s, it was already an old, run-down farmhouse, just a clapboard house. One of those hallways with rooms down the middle. Um, the floor was old, the walls were old. There were cracks in the walls or cracks in the windows. Uh, Emma said she could feel winter air coming in from all directions sometimes. It was just so cold and drafty. And all she ever wanted was a new house. So when Burton married Emma. He promised her that if she'd move into this house, they'd only live there a little while, and then he would build her a new house. So she married him and moved into the old house. And y'all know how husbands are? (laughs) It it took him decades. I mean, for decades, he continued to say, I'm going to build you a new house, but he never really did. I mean, they lived there for decades. And finally, at some point, Burton got on it and decided to, to... keep his promise and build Emma a brand new house. So, so that's what he started doing. He would go out across the field. They picked out a spot on top of a hill. That's where the new house would be. And Burton went to work. He worked and worked and worked. And as Emma was watching him work, she noticed a pattern. He would work over at the new place. He'd, he'd leave it. He'd come back to the old house and he'd get stuff. Like one day he came and he popped off all of the paneling in the parlor, like the wood paneling on the walls, and he chucked that across the hill and and took it to the new house. And that was sort of the pattern from day to day. He'd come over. One day he got the old stairway banister, and she never really liked that banister. He took it, carried it over to the new house. Now, Burton had always been thrifty. But Emma just watched that happen day after day after. He would come in and get floorboards. He would come in, he'd pop off the crown molding, take it out across the field to the new house. And Emma really didn't understand exactly what he was doing until the day he told her to close her eyes and walk across the field and he took her in her brand new house. Emma said that when she walked in that house and opened her eyes, her heart sunk. What do you think? She looked around. And it was the old house. Like all he did was take it apart, move it across, and put it back together. He just rebuilt the old house. It was the same old house. Emma said everywhere she looked, it was the same old house. It was the same old stairway banister. It was the same doors that never would actually close. It was the same floorboards, only now it had like new nail holes from the old house. It was the old house. All she ever wanted was a new house. Burton promised a new house. But when she opened her eyes, she was just standing in the same old house. Do you understand what I'm saying? Not everybody really wants change. Jesus brings change. Jesus changes everything. It's just what he does. If anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. The old is gone. The old is gone. 
everything becomes new, but not everybody wants things to be new. And that brings us to the Pharisees. You know, Jesus's way of doing things was new because Jesus makes everything new. But the Pharisees just don't deal well with new things. They like things the way they are. The Pharisees are very religious. You know that. They're very serious. And they like their religion to be very serious. The Pharisees were very serious about following the Old Testament law. They were so serious about following the rules that were in the Bible that they added rules on top of rules on top of rules just to make sure that they never broke any rules. They always thought more rules would help. So they added rule upon rule upon rule. Now, Jesus has already been arguing with the Pharisees in, in, in chapter 5. Remember the last story we read together is when Jesus called the tax collector Levi. We know him as Matthew. Jesus calls Matthew to follow him. And Matthew gets up. He leaves his old life and follows Jesus. You know, the old has passed away. The new has come. And the new is with Jesus. Matthew follows Jesus now. But before... Uh, anything else happens, he invites all of his old friends to come to his house for a banquet and he invites Jesus and the disciples. And so they have this giant banquet, this giant feast with Matthew and all of his old sinful friends. That flies right up the nose of the Pharisees. Remember the story? So the Pharisees pull Jesus aside and they say, why are you eating with such scum? Talking about the tax collectors, talking about the, the non-religious people that Jesus and the disciples were with. I mean, this is just how the Pharisees are. They do not understand who Jesus is. They do not understand what he's doing, but it doesn't look like what they do. So they want nothing to do with it. Understand with the Pharisees, if the Pharisees, with the Pharisees, if it's something that they don't like, they assume that it's wrong. Understand? If they don't like it, it must be wrong. And Jesus doesn't do anything the way they do it. He doesn't say it the way they say it. And for that reason, they are convinced Jesus must be wrong. So the banquet at the house of Matthew continues. In the New Living Translation, it says, one day some people said to Jesus. But actually, if you look closely at the text, the way Luke wrote it, it looks like they're probably still at the table at Matthew's house. So understand, these stories go right here together. They didn't win with the first argument. They row right into a second argument. One day, some people said to Jesus, John the Baptist's disciples fast and pray regularly. Now, understand, they're upset because Jesus and the disciples were at the feast. They were celebrating. They want to know why Jesus and his disciples are always having to eat and drink. You know, because in their mind, religious people fast. And remember, if, if they don't like it, it must be wrong. So Jesus and the disciples don't fast the way they fast, so therefore they must be wrong. So now they move to this argument. They go right from one argument right into a new argument. Why don't you fast? Why don't you fast the way we fast? Why don't you fast the way John the Baptist and his disciples fast? Why don't you fast? Now, understand, I don't really think they care about fasting that much. I don't really think that's what this argument is about. I just think they like to argue. George Bernard Shaw, I think he's the one who said you should never get into uh, a mud wrestling you know, fight with a pig because the pig will only like it. You understand? And, and I think that's the way the Pharisees are. It doesn't really do any good to argue with them because they just like it. They just like to argue. As soon as Jesus ends one argument, they start another argument. They just like to argue. 
So I don't really think it's about fasting, although it's about fasting right now. For them, it's just about arguing. It's just about being right. It's just about opposing everything that Jesus will say and do because Jesus doesn't say and do it like they say and do it. You ever had people in your life that try to draw you into these kind of religious arguments? People at work or school who just all the time bringing something up, something that makes you different from them? You got friends who who don't use instruments in their church and they want to argue with you about why you use instruments in your church or... Or you have a friend from a Seventh-day Adventist tradition who wants to worship on Saturday and they, and they wonder why you worship on Sunday. I mean, sometimes even within churches like ours, we, we get into arguments about music, about hymns versus contemporary songs, and people want to go back and forth about this kind of thing. Now, understand, Jesus is always surrounded by people who want to draw him into these kinds of arguments. So if you find yourself having these sorts of debates, there's some things you can learn from Jesus. And I think it's important. So let's just look at him first off from that perspective. John the Baptist's disciples fast and pray regularly. So do the disciples of the Pharisees. Why are your disciples always eating and drinking? So understand, it looks like they want to argue now about fasting, but I don't really think they want to argue about fasting. I don't think there's anything Jesus could say about fasting that would change their minds. They're not actually interested in what Jesus thinks about fasting. They only want to criticize Jesus. Do you understand that? They only want to criticize. So, so first principle here, just because someone is criticizing you, it doesn't mean you're doing anything wrong. There are some people who just criticize. They're just critical. And they would criticize no matter what you're doing. And so honestly, just because you're being criticized, it doesn't necessarily mean you're doing something wrong. Now, perhaps you are. I'm not saying that you can't be wrong. But I'm just saying, every time somebody criticizes you, it doesn't necessarily mean you're doing something wrong. And this is what you learn from Jesus. Jesus doesn't necessarily get defensive He doesn't here really try to defend what he and his disciples are doing. You'll see what he does in a minute. He doesn't turn it back on them. He doesn't really jump into the argument with them. He sees no need to do that. He doesn't need to get defensive. And for that matter, he doesn't put them on the defensive. Jesus chooses his arguments very, very carefully. And just because the Pharisees invite him into one doesn't mean he participates in it. And you don't have to argue either. You don't have to argue with everybody who wants to argue with you about something religious. You just don't have to get into the arguments. You don't have to. Jesus sometimes does, but he's very strategic and very careful. Honestly, I'm just that pastor. There's not a whole lot that I want to argue about. I kind of like everything, and I kind of see two sides of most everything. I will stand forever on Jesus and his cross, and I will fight and defend Jesus on the cross. But most everything else, I, I, it's just, you know, I'm not really interested in fighting with you about that. I mean, do you know Jesus? If you don't know Jesus, that's all you got to know. You got to know Jesus. People love to argue and debate, but, but honestly, just back to this, just because somebody's criticizing, just because they do it differently or they don't like the way you're doing it, it doesn't mean that you're wrong. Jesus and the disciples don't do it the way the Pharisees do it, but that doesn't make them wrong. So notice what Jesus does. Jesus has a beautiful response, and this will help us all. This helps us. Notice what he does. I'll read the verse, verse 34. Jesus responded, do wedding guests fast while celebrating with the groom? Of course not. Someday the groom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast. And then Jesus gives the parables 
How is that an answer to their question? Well, very simple principle. Jesus always goes back to why. If somebody wants to argue, I would encourage you, go back to why. They want to argue about the what. They want to argue about fasting and the how. What and the how. How often should you fast? What's fasting look like? Why don't you and your disciples do it the way we do it? You understand? They want to argue the what and the how. They just want to talk about fasting. But Jesus takes them straight back to why. And this makes all the difference in the world when it comes to religious traditions, religious rules, religious preferences. you got to get back to why. It, it, for example, the whole deal about music, you know, should we sing more contemporary songs? Should we sing more hymns? That's not a debate that's going to take us anywhere because people have different opinions. The key is to go back to why. Why do we sing in the first place? Why do we sing together? Why are we worshiping in the first place? What is worship for? What does this mean? You understand? You have to go back to why. So the Pharisees are are wanting to draw Jesus into this debate about what? About fasting. But Jesus goes back to why. Why do people fast in the first place? What does fasting mean? Well, what is the why here? Now understand, the Pharisees fasted for for some simple reasons. They fasted because the Old Testament requires it. But the Old Testament only requires fasting once a year. Once a year on the Day of Atonement, the Jews were required to fast. One time a year. But the Pharisees, remember, they like to add rules upon rules upon rules. So by Jesus' day, Pharisees fast at least twice a week, unless it's a week where they fast more than twice a week. They love to fast at least twice a week. But for them, it's, it's become something different. There were probably good reasons for fasting in the first place, but now their primary reason for fasting is, is for show. They make a public show about it. Not so much from the Bible, but from other historical documents. We know that the ancient Pharisees used to make a big deal about fasting. They didn't just fast and stay home and pray. They would, they would put lime or something on their face to make their face look white. And then they would go out in public. They would whiten their face so that they could look very, very pale and hungry. Like they did this on purpose. They wanted you to know that they were fasting, so they tried to look as hungry, as sick, as pale as they could. And then they would go to Ryan's Steakhouse and stand by the buffet, you know, and watch you eat. Because that's the thing. If you're not going to eat, what's the fun of not eating unless you can, you know, make other people feel bad for eating? So this is what they do. It's a show. And you'll see Jesus throughout his ministry trying to confront them on the way the religion has become just a show. It's just something for people to see. It's a way to demonstrate how religious they are. It's a way of gaining respect. It's a way of being seen. And Jesus wants nothing to do with any of that. So they would whiten their face. They would stand around. They would look hungry. They would criticize other people for eating when they were fasting. And this is now the game they're trying to pull Jesus into. Why don't you fast like the Pharisees and their disciples fast? Why don't you do it the way we do it? Jesus is not going to argue about that. Why fast? Why are we told to fast in the first place? Well, originally... We're told to fast in order to seek the Lord, to seek God, to, 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 to draw ourselves into his presence. We, we, 
We fast out of longing. We fast out of anticipation. In the Old Testament, they fasted in order to pray for the coming of the Messiah, in order to await the time when the Messiah would come and bring God's kingdom to earth. I mean, you fasted for all of these reasons of longing and desire and anticipation. Now, that's the why. But the Pharisees have forgotten the why. They've forgotten the why. They no longer think about why you're supposed to do these things. They're only interested in whether or not people do it like they do it, like they want it done. So Jesus tells us a little bitty similar, a little parable. He just says, do wedding guests fast when they're in the presence of the groom? No. <laughs> Again, Jesus is going back to the why. He, he uses this analogy of the wedding. He's showing how inappropriate it would be to go to the wedding. They're in the presence of the groom, the bridegroom, and then not eat, not eat the wedding cake, not eat the buffet at the wedding. I mean, if you go to weddings, if you're like me, I'm just trying to hoping the preacher would move this thing along so I can get to the buffet. It's a feast. It's a celebration. It's a party. That's why we're all there, because that's what's appropriate. You're, you're, you're in the presence of the groom. So what Jesus is saying is, is back to the why. You fast in order to, to, to seek the presence of God. You fast in order, like John the Baptist and his disciples, to show repentance. But, but that doesn't fit the reality of what God is doing in the life and ministry of Jesus and his disciples. That doesn't fit. That, that, that meaning, that purpose doesn't fit. So fasting isn't appropriate. Why is it not appropriate? Because they're with Jesus. This is what Jesus says. Do wedding guests fast while celebrating, look at the word, with the groom? It's Jesus' presence. It changes everything. It changes, it changes the whole tradition of fasting. Because Jesus would say, you're fasting in order to be in the presence of God, to seek the presence of God. My disciples don't have to do that. I'm with them. Do you see that? They don't have to fast in order to draw near to the presence of God. Jesus says, they've got me with them. I'm with them. They don't have to fast in anticipation of the coming of the Messiah. Jesus says, I'm with them. They have me with them. It's a time of celebration. This mourning, this repentance, this long face, this seriousness, this anticipation of the coming of the presence of God. Jesus says, that doesn't fit the reality of the fact that they have me with them now. It's a celebration. We don't fast because we feast. They have me with them. You see that? Do you understand that? Jesus' presence changes everything. Jesus' presence changes everything. Now, a lot of this passage, of course, is dealing with the Pharisees and their relationship to the Old Testament law. But in your life, understand the same principle holds true. Jesus' presence changes everything. In a lot of ways, it's just the joy, the, the joy that Jesus and his disciples have. I mean, they're criticized because they're always at every single celebration, at every feast, at every party. It's not just that they're there. Jesus is literally the life of every party. And that flies straight up the nose of the Pharisees. They want their religion kept serious. They like reverence. They don't understand this joy, this joy that Jesus brings. Do you understand the joy that Jesus brings? I mean, when we talk about how the presence of Jesus changes everything, do you understand that? Not just at a, at, at a level of, yeah, I, I agree with what you're saying, preacher. I mean, do you know the truth of that? Do you know how the presence of Jesus changes everything? 
I mean, first off, Jesus' presence will change the way you see God, will change the very way you see God. And this is the beginning of the change. This is how he changes everything, changes the way you see God. Now, now before you know Jesus, according to scripture, we're called enemies of God. You don't understand God. You can't really even know God unless you know Jesus, unless you love Jesus. So, so many people just live in this relationship with God and they think of God as this this angry old man in the sky, this angry old man with lightning bolts who's just ready to to knock you down, to to strike you dead. I mean, they just see God in this way, this far away God who may or may not even be there. But understand, Jesus is God in the flesh. And once you know Jesus, then you know God and you can never see God in in that way again. Jesus's presence changes everything about the way you see God. And Jesus's presence changes everything about the way you see yourself. Again, Paul says before Jesus, we all were literally enemies of, of God. Before you know Jesus, you remember coming into church sometimes? I'll still have people in the community say, Pastor Tim, I can't come into that church. If I walk in that church, while while the ceiling will fall in. You know, they're not actually making a joke. They're they're telling you something really serious about the way they feel. That 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 they are so opposite, so um, contradictory to everything that would happen here that if they walked in, it would, it would fall in on them. I mean, that's just how people see themselves outside of Jesus. They often just find themselves in their sin and they live with this incredible guilt and shame. I mean, I hope none of you are, are living this way. I hope you all know Jesus and you know the, 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 the freedom that, that he brings. But I know that there are people who, who continue to live their whole lives with the guilt and shame of something they did years and years ago. I mean, years ago, back in your school days, back in your sports days, but back before you knew the Lord, I mean, but back before you knew better. I mean, they're just people who live with this incredible guilt of things that they did so long ago, and they never seem to manage to get free of that. You're not just a miserable failure. You're not some imposter in your own life. Do you understand? Once you know Jesus, it changes the way you see yourself. You are not, you're not this incredible failure just waiting for everybody to understand, you know, what, what a flop you are. You are a son, a daughter of, of the living God, the heavenly father. Do you understand? Jesus forces you to see yourself in a completely different way. And Jesus' presence changes the way you'll see your whole life. Because your life now is not just getting up in the morning, doing the same thing, going to work, coming home, uh, getting a snack, eating supper, falling asleep in your chair during Jeopardy, do it again tomorrow. I mean, your life is so much more. Jesus says, I've come to give you life and, and life to the full, an abundant and overflowing kind of life. It's not just this life of nothing special. It's life with purpose. I mean, you've got breath in your lungs, you've got strength in your bones, and you have a purpose, a real purpose for your life. God put things inside of you. And once you know Jesus, those gifts, those things begin to come out and and he will use you to do something important for him in in the world. I mean, understand your life is important. Your life has purpose and meaning, but you don't know that. You'll never find that until you know Jesus. Now, one more. Jesus' presence changes the way you see hard times. And I think this matters because hard times are where you really begin to wonder what difference that Jesus makes. 
this is where sometimes we're deceived. We think that if, if, that if Jesus is with us, then we're never going to have any problems. You know, if, if I'm a Christian and, and I take my kids to church, my kids will never turn away. They'll never rebel. They'll never disobey. I mean, come on. The scripture says that the rain falls on the just and the unjust, which just means, you know, that, that, that's how it happens. It, it rains on all of us. And if it's not raining on you today, it will rain on you tomorrow because sooner or later it rains on everybody. That's just what the scripture says. So when we have hard times to understand Jesus is with me, but I can still have hard times. Rain falls on the just and the unjust. And so it doesn't mean that I've been singled out somehow, that I'm being punished. It, it doesn't mean that at all. It doesn't mean that, that, that God somehow has abandoned me, turned his back on me. I mean, it doesn't mean that something strange is happening. Hard times come, trouble comes. But Jesus' presence changes everything. You understand? It's his presence with me. It's his presence with me. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil because... Thou art with me. His presence is what makes the difference. And understand, no matter how severe the storm, no matter how dark the night, if Jesus is with you, you will soon learn that wherever Jesus is, that is the safest, that is the most peaceful place in the universe for you. You just want to be where Jesus is. I would rather be with Jesus in the middle of any storm than without Jesus on the sunniest beach on the planet. I just want to be with Jesus. His presence changes everything. His presence changes everything. So Jesus says that my disciples have me with them. I'm with them. And so we celebrate. And so it's a time for joy. They have me with them. Jesus' presence changes everything. But as we said, not everybody wants change. So we go to these little parables. It's just amazing. I love these. I know you want parables to be long stories, but technically these are parables too. It's an it's extended simile, if you want to think of that, a metaphor. But Jesus gives three of them. They all have the very same message, the very same truth that they're trying to, to illustrate. Let's do the first one. Verse 36. No one tears a piece of cloth from a new garment and uses it to patch an old garment. For then the new garment would be ruined and the new patch wouldn't even match the old garment. What's Jesus saying? Same thing he's going to say in every one of these little parables, and that is just simply the new disrupts the old. The new disrupts the old. So notice here, no one tears a piece of cloth from a new garment to patch an old garment. What's Jesus saying? Say you got a pair of pants. I got a pair of pants right now, a pair of jeans, and the knees are destroyed. The knees are ripped out. I've had these jeans forever. Giant holes in the knees. Now, what Jesus is saying is that nobody, if you have like a pair of holy jeans, you would not go to the store and buy a brand new pair of jeans, cut the new pair of jeans up to make patches for your old pair of jeans. Nobody does that, or at least we would say nobody smart does that. You don't do that. If you've got a new pair of pants, if you have a new garment, then what do you do? You wear the new garment and you throw away the old garment. You don't keep the old garment, you wear the new. The new disrupts, it displaces the old. And, and this is what Jesus is saying in, in multiple ways over and over and over in here. When you have something new, you take the new and you throw away the old. 
all things have become new. The old is gone in Christ. You understand the message? Do you understand that? But when Jesus says nobody does this, this is exactly what we do. Because as I said, we don't like change that much. And some of you don't like change at all. But you also don't like problems. So what you want is just like, just enough Jesus. Like if you could just have enough Jesus just to patch up the holes of your life. Like you don't really want change. You just want like the Lord to change your husband. So that's what you want. Like God, you know, I just want enough of Jesus so that I I can stay with my husband. But I still want to just continue to do me. Like you want to be the same. You just want a patch of Jesus like over your husband. It doesn't work that way. It doesn't work this way. You don't just get to like apply small parts of the gospel to the places of your life where where you're having trouble holding it together. There's no little patch of Jesus that you just sort of put on your family where he changes your family, but then you still get to drink all the time. It doesn't work like that. Change is complete. If anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Everything has become new. You don't just get to patch it up. You don't just get to put, a, put like a Sunday morning patch on it, and then you go ahead and live like hell all week, and you think that that's the way you're going to get through life. It doesn't work that way. Nobody does that, Jesus says. You get it? You do another one? Let's go. Jesus keeps going. Verse 37. And no one puts new wine. I'm sorry. I know we're all Baptists. Y'all thinking, what? What? You know, Pastor Tim, tell us that the Greek word there means Welch's grape juice. Well, y'all, it doesn't mean Welch's grape juice. Uh, Jesus is talking about something that everybody in that culture knew and understood. They knew wine. They they understood wine. And they understand how wine operated. Uh, There were no glass bottles for wine. There were no, like, cardboard cartons, (laughs) you know, boxes of wine in Jesus' day. Y'all, they put wine in animal skin. Like, if you, if you ever think you want to drink, this will make you not want to drink. Like, they would put, like, there weren't bottles or boxes, so they would, like, if they killed an animal, you know, they, like, they gut it, they'd eat the meat, and then they'd, like, you know, shave all the fur off, and then just save, like, the hide, like the skin. And then they'd make a sack out of that skin. And they would sew up the edges, and they would form, like, a, a, a bag that, that would hold wine. And it was very, very good for holding wine. They were called wine skins. Because they were made of skin and they held wine. You understand? Wine skins. Here's the thing. I don't know. I've never been a, what's the word? What's the name of a person who makes wine? A venter. Yeah. Are you, have you been Baptist all your life? No, <laughs> Methodist. Yeah. Yeah. The Methodist comes out. She, she knows a little bit too much about wine. Uh, that's funny. <laughs> No, yeah, so the, 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 the process of fermentation, when you take the juice and let it age, it becomes wine. So they would do that in the wine skins. Again, they don't have anything else to put the wine in because the, the, the fermentation process involves releasing gas, releasing an air. It's kind of like when a Diet Coke, you shake it up, it fizzes. It's a much slower process, but that, that juice, as it turns into wine, it releases that gas. It, it, it has a very slow fizz, and it, it causes that wineskin to expand. Now, a new wineskin, like fresh off the animal, is, is, is elastic, and it will expand. And that's what it would do. Those wineskins would start to blow up as the wine would ferment. 
But the older the wineskin gets, it gets brittle. And this is the example Jesus is using. When you wanted to make new wine, you would always go for new wineskins because nobody would put new wine in an old wineskin. What happens when you put new wine in an old wineskin? The old wineskin has already expanded as, as far as it can. And so now if you fill it up with new wine and it has to expand, what's it going to do? It's just going to burst. And that's what Jesus says. It's going to burst at the seams. It's going to ruin the wineskin. It's going to spill the wine. You've, you've, you've gone and ruined everything, Jesus says. So nobody does that. Again, Jesus' message is the, the new, it disrupts the old. It, it bursts the seams of the old. The joy, the freedom that Jesus brings is going to just explode the seams of the rules and the law by which the Pharisees insisted they must live their lives. You, you can't mix these things. The old is gone. The new has come. Now, again, some of you are saying, Pastor Tim, we're talking about the Old Testament law here. And Jesus said he didn't come to, 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 to erase it. He came to fulfill it. And you're right. You're exactly right. Jesus does bring the newness and the law is the old, but understand that there's still a very important sense in which what I'm saying is absolutely true. The old is gone, the new is come. I think the best way to picture it would be to think about um, the Wright brothers who were like the fathers of flight, right? At Kitty Hawk and they built this, the first airplane, they built it out of popsicle sticks and masking tape, right? Have you seen pictures of it? And, and they got it, off the ground, it flew about 123 feet or something, but it was the very first flight, very first airplane, and they get all the credit, you all. They invented it, fathers of flight, Kitty Hawk, popsicle stick airplane. But that was a long time ago. Now we've got, like, like what's the best airplane we have? It's like the, the Airbus, like the Boeing Airbus. It's these giant jet airplanes that can fly you around the world in like two hours while you're eating like the smallest bag of peanuts that, that, that you know, ever, ever made. Uh, giant jet airplanes, you know, with like two stories and, and all of that. Now, just imagine if we took the jet engines off of the Boeing Airbus and strapped those on that little popsicle stick airplane that the Wright brothers had. You, you understand? It wouldn't work. You can't mix those things. Now, the Airbus could never even come into existence without the Wright brothers in their airplane. But once we have the Airbus, we don't still try to fly around in the Wright brothers, you know, popsicle stick airplane. It's gone. It's done. It served its purpose. It got us to here. And this is what Jesus is saying. The Old Testament law had its function, but now Jesus has come. Forgiveness and mercy and grace are poured out at the cross. You don't have to mix the old and the new. Nobody puts new wine into the old wineskins. This is what he's trying to tell the Pharisees. They do not understand. They do not understand. They do not understand. But because of the next one, it's that little parable in verse 39 that sort of blows my mind. It doesn't say what I thought Jesus would say. It just doesn't. Verse 39, no one who drinks the old wine seems to want the new wine. They just say the old is fine. <laughs> See, I, I didn't think, being a preacher, like if you're going to like do three, that last one ought to just grab them, you know? So if, if I were helping Jesus preach his sermon here, I would say, Jesus, no. What you want to finish with is this. You want to say, anybody who tastes the new wine, they'll never go back, Right? That's how you end that sermon right there. Once you taste the new wine, you're never going to want the old wine again. You're going to want the new wine. But 
That's not what Jesus says. I think Jesus knows more than I know about good preaching. I also think he knows a whole lot more than I know about people. And he knows how people are. So Jesus just tells the truth about people. He just says, you know what, though? Uh, no, nobody really tastes new wine and, you know, wants new wine. They just always want to keep going back to the old stuff, you know. Because that's how we are, right? You could have something different, but you only want what you always have had. Not everybody who needs change wants change, and Jesus is honest about that right here. But would you just be honest with me? I mean, I know you think that you just want, you know, things to be as they are. You want the old life. But is that really working for you? I mean, don't you understand if nothing ever changes, nothing ever changes? And if you always do what you're doing now, you'll always have what you have now. Don't you understand how any of this works? You can't just patch up your old life with like little pieces of Jesus and, and imagine that you're going to get through it this way. It, it doesn't work that way. Nobody does that, Jesus says. And you can't just take the old wineskin of your life and just keep asking Jesus to refill it, you know, with something. It it doesn't work. You can't keep refilling the empty old life that you have and think that somehow you're going to get to a life of fullness. It it doesn't work. Nobody does it that way. If if you really want a different kind of marriage, if you really want a a different kind of mouth, if you really want a different kind of attitude, if if you really want a, a purpose for your life, if you really want to find freedom from your hurts and your hangups and your habits, then don't you understand that Jesus is the only one who offers you that kind of change? You can't change yourself. If you could change yourself, you would already be different. You can't do this without him. The promise of the gospel is if anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. The old is gone. Everything is new. Understand? You could have a different kind of life, but you have to want that. And it turns out that not everybody who needs change wants change. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, some of us desperately need change. Lord, we are not joyful. We're not even happy. We continue, Lord, to have the same old arguments with the same old people. We continue, Lord, to do the same thing every single day and continue to wonder why we continue to come up empty. We continue, Lord, to refuse the chains that would bring us life and then we wonder why we feel like death. Lord Jesus, only you can do what is necessary. Only you have the power to do what must be done in our lives, Lord. So will you just help us today to turn to you? Will you help us, Lord, just to finally once and for all surrender to the change that you would bring? And Lord, will you just change us from head to toe? Will you just make everything new? 
Lord, we've continued to try to patch this thing together, Lord, with old things and new things, trying to make a life for ourselves. But Lord, will you just destroy the life that we're trying to make for ourselves? And would you just become our whole life? Only you can do this, Lord Jesus, but we need this desperately. Lord, I pray for those people in this house right now in the sound of my voice who desperately need change but simply don't want change. Lord Jesus, I pray that today you would change the things that they want. Help them, Lord, to begin to become sicker and more tired of their life as it is, Lord, and help them more and more to want the new life that you bring. Give them a vision of it, Lord, a taste of new wine, Lord Jesus. And once tasting it, Lord, will you give us the grace never, ever to go back? We pray these things in the name of Jesus who makes all things new.